The following podcast is a Dear Media production. She's a lifestyle blogger extraordinaire. Fantastic. And he's a serial entrepreneur. A very smart cookie. And now Lauren Everts and Michael Bostick are bringing you along for the ride. Get ready for some major realness. Welcome to the Skinny Confidential, him and her. Aha. So I said, you mean to tell me if I get someone to send in a hundred grand, I get 50? He's like, well, theoretically, it doesn't work that way. You know, no, we don't call people like that. We're calling average moms and dads. They invest $500 or so forth, right? I'm like, why? He goes, because rich people don't buy penny stocks. We made it. We made it to another Tuesday, Lauren. Welcome back, everybody. That clip is from our guest of the show today, the real Wolf of Wall Street. The guy, the actual guy that Leo played in The Wolf of Wall Street, Jordan Belfort. How crazy is it to have Leonardo DiCaprio play you in a movie? Like, what would you do? It'll happen. Like, what if there was a Dear Media movie? And Maybe not like him. Starring Leo DiCaprio as you. You'd freak out. What if I played him in a movie? Okay, all right. I'm going to go projectile vomit. I am Lauren Everett's the creator of The Skinny Confidential. And I am Michael Bostic. I am the CEO of the Dear Media Podcast Network. Guys, this episode, it goes into a lot of different places. Jordan is a fun guy. He is a fun guy. Before we talk with Jordan, we are going to do the question of the week. We're going to do it every single Tuesday. You can expect it. And... We're going to tell you what the name is of this series next week because we think we thought of a name. But anyways, question of the week. Ready? This is very relevant to this episode. This is from at Haley underscore Birchfield. And she says, what is the biggest business mistake you've ever made? And I'll let you start, Michael. Well, that's relevant to this episode. There's a a couple (laughs) of business mistakes uh, made. My biggest business mistake ever made is by solely is, is when I've solely chased money right? There's a lot of people that they see an opportunity. They don't even sit back and ask themselves, is this something I actually enjoy? Is this something I'm passionate about? Is this something I really believe in? They just go for it because there's dollars associated. There's a dollar signs at the end goal. And so they just start pursuing things. The next thing you know, most of the time it's fleeting because it's not something you care about. Most of the time you're setting yourself up for failure because you're doing anything, cutting corners to chase that money. And so I think if I could give any advice to young people, and it's obviously you'll hear it in this episode, is to, yes, obviously you want to have a sound business that's financially worth working. But if the if the only reason you're doing something is because there's a big paycheck, whether that's a job, an entrepreneurial endeavor, whatever it is, if that's if the only reason is money, I am certain that you will end up unhappy or unsuccessful at some point in your life. So you have to find a greater reason outside of just money. So refine your intention. Yes. My biggest business mistakes, I have I have two. I have well, I have a bunch of mistakes, but if we're just getting uh, if we're just gonna go um sort of general here, one is I think that I could have done a better job at transitioning from a solopreneur to an entrepreneur. It was really weird to be working for myself for five years on my own terms, doing everything myself and then having to bring on a team. I didn't know how to manage it. And I think I would have looked more into how to manage a team. I don't think I was the best boss that I could be. I think I've gotten better, but I'm still not quite there yet. Another business mistake that I've made Um, I was talking to my dad about this the other day is that I feel like sometimes I, I put all my eggs in one basket. So I've been so focused on building my business for the last 10 years that sometimes other things get neglected, like maybe my spirituality or, um, I don't know, like even something as small as a meditation practice or time with friends and family, it can get neglected because I get so obsessive over something. So I, I don't know if balance is the right word that I'm looking for, but I think that it's important to, Um, make sure that you put eggs in other baskets than all in your business. Because then when something goes wrong in the business, it can be all encompassing. Those are my two. 
think that's good too. Thanks, babe. With that, we are going to talk business mistakes in this episode. We are going to talk about the movie in this episode. We're going to talk about a lot of fun things. We're going to talk about quaaludes. We're going to talk about parties. We're going to talk about a lot of things. Leo DiCaprio. This episode goes everywhere. Jordan is a dream guest, so much so that we have invited him back on for part two because we truly feel an hour was not enough. He has so much in that brain. We got to have him back on. Guys, the guy had Leonardo DiCaprio play him in a movie directed by Martin Scorsese. I mean, just that in itself. Like we, when we were talking to him, we first met, I said, like, what does that feel like to have Leonardo DiCaprio and have a movie written about you and directed by Martin Scorsese? That is not a unique life. This is a very unique interview. We go all over the place. Jordan will be back. Guys, with that, who is Jordan Belfort for those of you that are unfamiliar? Jordan Belfort is an American author, motivational speaker, and former stockbroker. In 1999, he pleaded guilty to fraud and related crimes in connection with stock market manipulation and running a boiler room as part of a penny stock scam. Before turning his life around and getting to where he is now, which we're going to get into, Belfort spent 22 months in prison and had a movie written, directed, and produced by Martin Scorsese, where Leonardo DiCaprio played him. Guys, with that, get ready for a wild ride with the Wolf of Wall Street himself, Jordan Belfort. We need to take a break because this is something that I've really wanted to talk about a lot, Michael, and this has to do with shaving. So I don't know if you guys know, but shaving is really, really hard when you're pregnant. You can't see your legs. You can't see your vagina. You can't even see your toes to shave your toes. Did you know I shaved my toes? Anyway. I I still want to keep things sexy down there, you know, even though I can't see what I'm looking at right now. So Lunchbox Wax is a salon entirely dedicated to waxing with over 40 salons across the country, offering fast, safe, and convenient services for everybody. It's time to put down those razors, say goodbye to bumps and cuts, and say hello to a chicer, sleeker you. Our friends at Lunchbox Wax provide a variety of services that can meet your every need. From eyebrow waxing to manscaping, they've got you covered. Manscaping, huh? Manscaping. Taylor and Michael could take some hints here. I gotta look tight and right and I guess hairless yeah. as well. No, not hairless, but just like like groom. Groom yes. your stuff. You know what I mean? Like If I gotta keep it clean at seven and a half months pregnant, you gotta keep it clean. Lunchbox wax isn't just to use though when you're pregnant and you need help down there and on your legs you can also use it for your brows I feel like everyone should wax their brows I've been waxing my brows since I was I don't know probably like 16 it's it's such a it's it it defines the face you know what I mean it lifts the eye it gives you a nice frame so you can also stay tuned for Lunchbox Wax first ever eyebrow collection define. That includes pencils, highlighters, and gel tints to create a bolder, fuller eyebrow coming to Lunchbox Wax Salon soon. To find the nearest Lunchbox Wax Salon near you, visit lunchboxwax.com. I like those eyebrows framed out, those legs clean and shaven, toes, and most <laughs> of all, get that Lunchbox cleaned up a little bit. <laughs> Visit lunchboxwax.com to receive $10 bear box towards any Lunchbox Wax service. Use code SKINNY when booking an appointment online to receive $10 off any service. One-time use per guest only. This code cannot be combined with any other offer. This code and offer expires February 5th, 2020. This is the Skinny Confidential, him and her. 
Jordan Belfort, the real Wolf of Wall Street, live in the studio. Welcome to the show. Thank you. This is going to be fun. This is gonna I'm, be excited. Fun. I'm very excited for this. I love being double teamed. Oh, we're going to double yeah. team you. Yeah. We have 100, oh, I have 100 boy. questions. Cool. Let's, let's, let's go. go back for the audience that is not familiar with you. Maybe they haven't heard your story, haven't seen the movie. I guess the ones from North Korea, you mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, 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 the two people that don't know what the Wolf of Wall Street is. Let's go back. Where, where'd you grow up? What was your childhood like? Grew up in Bayside, Queens middle-class family you know we, it's like i think you know the great thing was we had enough to know how little we had so it wasn't like there was no food in the fridge that was you know always there but we lived close to long island that's where the money was so like there was this vision we all had that like one day you'd hit it big and move out to long island with the rich people you know although i will tell you growing up in a six-story building i would scratch my head at the age of 10 11 saying why would people want to live in homes i mean I have like 50 friends in my building, in my own floor, I had eight friends. It was like, who would want that? And I get it now, but you know, <laughs> but I didn't get it. So I loved, you know, sort of where I lived, growing up with tons of kids, highly educated, very success oriented area I grew up in. So Your dad was a smart guy, yeah? My dad and my mom. My, yeah. my mom, brilliant. And my dad, who just passed, was really smart, but they were both CPAs in the 50s. My mom then went to law school in the I think it was 2000, and she was, well, I don't know, yeah, she graduated. She was 71 when she graduated. She's the oldest woman in New York State to pass the bar. Yeah, she was a real go-getter. I mean, oh, you, yeah. you told us that on your show. Uh, Do you, yeah. you think that was a, a big inspiration for you, your mom or your dad? You know, I you know, I had this talk with someone the other day about just about, you know, women in the workplace, this equal right. I, mean, I think some on some level, I, I'm kind of a, was oblivious because I just, my mother was so empowered. I mean, like my experience that women just thrived in the work environment. She never complained about being mistreated. But, you know, she's a brilliant lady and she would never put up with it. So it was just my own personal experience, right? Obviously, you know, when you see shows like Mad Men, I'm like, holy shit. They're like, like how they used to treat women back in the, it's crazy, right? But that was when she was going to work, which was amazing. Yeah. And she's still sharp as a tack today. Spry, you know, and she's in the late 80s. So what's a mini Jordan look like? Like, are you a hustler? Are you making deals? Yeah, mini Jordan looks, looks like. <laughs> Just like I am today, but probably just a little bit younger. I was like a born entrepreneur slash salesperson from the time I emerged my mother's womb. At the age of six, I was the kid with the lemonade stand and selling toys and stuff. At the age of eight, I had a paper out. I was knocking on doors to expand it. At the age of 10, I was shoveling driveways after snowstorms. So it used to snow a lot back in the, in the day. It was before Al Gore invented global warming, right? You still like crazy, right? So I, you know, about a mile away, was a really wealthy neighborhood called the Gables that had big homes, right? And you know, I bundled up and I just went, my little shovel took this big and I said, knock that. 20 bucks, I'll shovel out your driveway. And, and you just made a lot of money when it snowed. Then my first real venture into business was a, a magician. When I was 12, I was watching TV. So David Copperfield, like, I think he made the Statue of Liberty disappear or something. And I was like, I wanna be a magician. So I started up my own little magic thing where I, you know, I put an ad in the penny saver, said the amazing Belfort. Children's parties, $25. I didn't even have to do any magic tricks. Like, and then the phone starts ringing and I panicked. And like, my dad was really good with me because he always knew I was on to these like, next thing, right? So he took me into the city and bought me some magic tricks. And I really great memories. There's a famous magic shop called Lewis Tannen back then. And I became the amazing villain. Harry Potter hat, the cape, right? <laughs> Did that. And then I hit it big for the first time at 16. And so I really made a lot of money. I started going down to Jones Beach in New York. It's a huge public beach on a hot summer Sunny day, there's a million people, like a million people, right? And I noticed this people were bitching and moaning as they were going up to the concession stand. 
far walk, right? It's a very long beach. So I said, hmm, I wonder what will happen if I, you know, load up a cooler with some ice cream and ices. So I went down next morning. Back then we had yellows before you were even born, probably. We had yellow pages back then, right? So found this ice cream distributor for good humor ice cream. Went down to Astoria, Queens, with these mad Greeks there running this distributorship, right? With all the trucks would come in the morning and fill up. And I went in with a styrofoam cooler, $7 for the cooler. Loaded up with a barrel of cherry Italian ices in a scooper and cups. Chip witches, fudgicles, Milky Way, Snickers, and frozen fruit bars, right? Chip witches were the jam. There you go, right? And frozen fruits, right? Big markup. So totally loaded the cooler was 22 bucks. I sold that cooler out in an hour for $104. Made like $120. It was crazy. This is 1978, right? So minimum wage, I think, was 95 cents an hour. I made 120 bucks in one hour. So what did I do? Went back the next day with four coolers. And I did that through my entire the high school, college, put myself through school that way. That was the little mini Jordan. You know, the, wow. We left your, after we recorded with you on your episode, we left and I told Lauren, I said, you know, there's certain people that you encounter in this life and you can look at them and know no matter what situation they're put in, they're going to make it. Like no matter what. And you're one of those people, obviously. Like, it, My friend's dad used to say, if you flush Jordan down the toilet bowl, <laughs> he'll come up holding a plumber's license. <laughs> and, you, and, and you kind of have in certain ways and certain aspects of your life, which we're going to. The problem is I flushed myself down the bowl though too many times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's fast forward a little bit. How do you land on Wall Street? So the short story is, so I, um, after I graduated from college, I was a very good student, right? My mom wanted me to be a doctor, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, if you would have asked me at 20, what do you want to do for a living? I said, well, I want to be rich for a living. I didn't have quite a vocation in mind. She wanted to be rich. So my mom always said, you know, the only noble way to be wealthy. And this is when I was in the high chair. Like, yep. You know, you have to be a doctor, a dentist. Like, so it was like she was spoon feeding me the applesauce as she was brainwashing me. You gotta be a doctor, a dentist, right? So I said, well, all right, well, I don't wanna be a doctor. That's another eight years, I'll kill myself, right? <laughs> so in me four years dental school, I'll be rich, I'll still be Dr. Belfort. My uncle was a dentist, made a lot of money. I said, fine, so I took the test, did well, got in. First day of dental school, we have an orientation. There's 105 kids in the auditorium. Dean gets up, he's like this white, Haired guy, white jacket, very dental looking, you know, and he's and he's like just looks the part. He goes, "Hey, welcome to the Baltimore College of Dental Surgery. You should be very proud to be here. Dentistry is a wonderful profession. You know, you'll be a pillar. You know, bravo to you." Everyone's like, "Hey, right?" So I'm like, "Okay." No, the kids look pretty bright-eyed and bushtailed. Then he says, "But let me say this: the golden age of dentistry is over. If you're here to make a lot of money, you're probably in the wrong place." I'm like, "The fuck? I'm in the wrong place." I got up and I walked <laughs> right out. I literally dropped out my first day. Couldn't tell my mother that though. She's like, oh, how school? Like, oh, it's pretty good. It was like, oh, I didn't get Maryland, but finally my money ran out and I had to get real with my life. So I looked in the help wanted section, right? And I answered a blind ad for selling door to door. And it turned out to be meat and seafood door to door. When I broke that to my parents, they were devastated, but you know, they always supported me. So I walked into this warehouse where they were, had these guys, you know this business where they sell like this home freezer plans, like boxes of steaks and shrimps, like the guys in the pickup trucks, right? That's what it was. And they had a one-day training program where you know, get in the truck with a guy and, and he'll teach you how to sell. And the next day they give you a truck. So get in the truck with this guy. His nickname was the Penguin. He used to, wow, why don't I stick up his ass? Like that sort of guy, right? <laughs> so the Penguin takes me and goes, listen, the key to sales, you gotta be pumped up and positive. I'm like, all right, you know? He goes, and whatever they say to you, no matter how mean they are, just always say, have a nice day. If they hang up on your, you know, the door. I'm like, why? He goes, because it makes you feel better about yourself. I'm like, all right, well, whatever, right? So we, Drives about 40 minutes up into an area called New Rochelle, up in Westchester County, New York. Gets into the first door. Knocks. Dorman's, hi, I'm Elliot. I do the slam. He's like, have a nice day. He goes, it's fine. It happens sometimes. His shoulders back. Waddle, waddle, waddle. Get totally positive, right? Goes to the next door. 
Hi, I'm Melly. I love slam. Just have a nice. Well, let me tell you something. <laughs> I, I walked like 35 doors in a row, get slammed in his face. And every time they slammed the door, he was like, have a nice day. Have a nice day. Waddle, waddle, waddle. Penguining all out with his, right, no problem, no problem. Okay, right? Until somewhere like around 1230, I noticed something strange. Gets out of the truck, his shoulders drop. He's like, loses the wallet, sticking his ass balls out. Like he's like now walking normally. And he goes up to the door. And instead of that confident knock, 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 he's like, barely knocks, right? And the woman opens up, kind looking woman, and he goes, you wouldn't want any filet mignon, shrimp or lobster tails, right? I mean, the last 50 people said no, so assuming you're gonna say no too, so let's just, now he didn't say those words, but it was so obvious that the guy had lost the state of certainty and no one, I was like, wow. I was like, I'd never seen this before. It's like my first experience really in the field. I was like, does he know what terribly sounds? Well, he didn't sell a box that whole day, right? So I said, well, let me give it a shot anyway. The next day I went back to the warehouse and they loaded me up with 35 boxes, which was five a day over seven days, right a week. And that was that, right? And you're supposed to sell here yeah, five a day, right? So I went out there and I went up to a wealthy area back in Westchester, right? Because I figured they had money to afford it. And the first door I knock on, so big mansion, I'm like, you know, so I was like, big door, I knock on it. I'm this little guy, right? And the woman goes, hi, I can help you. And something happened. It was the first real sales job I had. It was real sales. It sounds like you got put in the position that you were destined to be Basically, in in that moment. Yeah, exactly. And I remember almost like an out-of-body experience. Like I felt, I said, wow, I sound really good. Like I was smiling, she was laughing, whatever happened. Next thing I know, I'm in the house with like all this meat, selling this meat. <laughs> she ends up buying 13 boxes of meat. This one lady, it was called a baker's dozen, right? She probably still has the freaking meat with so much meat, right? She was like a single woman, right? So she buys it all. The first day I sold the entire truck, all 35 boxes. I almost saw a woman with the truck. She almost bought the truck from me, right? <laughs> and when I got back to the warehouse, they were like, what'd you do with all the meat? Did, did you sell it to someone you knew? I said, no, that was cold coin, like bullshit. So no one ever sold more like 10 boxes. I said, oh, I was cold. Shit, I want to buy the meat after this story. Right. How do I buy it? <laughs> it was actually not bad meat. It wasn't particularly cheap. But you know, but anyway, next day they gave me 50. I sold those 50. And that first week I sold 280, 258 boxes. I shattered the company record. I did that for a couple of weeks. And then I said, well, I'm working for these bozos. We don't know anything. Like half the time there's meat not in the freezer. I said, I'll just do it myself, like the beach. So I went down, I found the meat distributor, a fish distributor. I built myself a box. I bought a truck, made the double markup, started going door to door and doing really well. Took the profits, bought a second truck. Then I bought a third truck. And before I knew it, I was 22, I had 26 trucks on the road. I was making a ton of money, I thought. But actually, I was making every mistake a young entrepreneur could make. I was overexpanding. I was undercapitalized, growing on credit. I had no idea what I was doing. The economics of the business was shit. I was not keeping track of inventory. Things were thawing out. People were stealing from me. I wasn't even screening out my recruits. I'd hire people from the paper and give them a truck. They'd be smoking crack under a bridge. And my stuff it was like the worst. I literally ran the worst business in the world, right? Uh, but of course, as a young entrepreneur, when I had a partner, it was the Penguin and I became partners, right? And we're still friends to this day, right? And the funny thing is we went to this accountant and this old Jewish accountant he found, right? And we explained to the guy, oh, here's our business model. Now this guy like probably knew as much about freaking meat as like Santa Claus there, right? Anyway, so he goes, oh, well, it sounds pretty good. I think you guys are gonna be rich. We would like the fucking honey, we're like, we're rich. We're, we, we need write-offs, let's go, we, let's go buy champagne. So we go and buy, we haven't made the first freaking sale yet. We buy champagne, we need to lease cars for, right? right? We lease ourselves beautiful cars. I literally did this, everything you could, do wrong, I did wrong. Within two years, I was like this proverbial Dutchman with my finger in dice. And that's really where you learn 
about business by making massive mistakes. And it was by sheer force of sales ability and training salespeople that I was able to keep this going. And then finally just collapsed. I lost everything. I personally guaranteed every truck. I went bankrupt. I was Oof. 23. But those are the best years to learn. Yeah. That oh my God, it was amazing. It's right At the time though, I was like devastated, right? Especially the day when they took the tow truck, came and took my little red Porsche away. I was like, I thought it was like the worst thing, right? Anyway, so right around that time, I heard the story about a kid I'd grown up with. His name was Michael Falk. Now, Michael Falk was not the sharp kid or a good-looking kid. He was like the weird kid. There's always a kid with the smelly house. No one wants to play in his house, right? That was <laughs> Nick Michael. You get it? His grandmother was kind of weird. I think she used to beat us with an umbrella. So he was the weirdo, right? And here, Michael's on Wall Street making over a million dollars a year. I'm like, get the fuck out. A million dollars a year? That's impossible. It was 1986. I'm like, this is not possible. Sure enough, like a day or two later, I, I'm in the local park and he pulls up in a red Ferrari. All right. He's not a good looking guy as a kid. He was not, he was a weird dorky kid, right? He's wearing like a $2,000 suit. He looks good now. He's got a gorgeous model. I'm like, I want the car. I want the model. I want, I want everything. I'm like, I have to go. So at the time, I was actually married to wife number one. There was a bunch of wives. I'm not done well in the wife department, right? Anyway, so I. This said, is the uh, one that was the one that was portrayed, yes. not the Margot Robbie one. No, the other one, right? Yeah, yeah, one, yeah. Okay. she was beautiful, by a gorgeous woman. She was like underplayed, like, and the girl was pretty too who played it, but she was really a very. Beautiful. How old did you get married the first time? Twenty-one, two. Oh damn, you're young. Yeah, 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 very young. Lauren, I am. I'm proud of you. You are tight and toned up as a pregnant lady. I got to say, I'm, you've been kicking ass in the gym, making me making me look bad because you're going. To the, you're actually going to the gym pregnant more than I am going. Not pregnant. Today, when I woke up, you said, "Where are you going at six forty-five? And I was off to Pilates. Can't believe it. What do you? What do you? What are you taking here? Protein. Got a lot of good protein. That is true. So every single time after I work out, I have my green smoothie waiting for me. Either Michael makes it or I postmate it. And if Michael makes it, I am using a specific protein. So we've talked about this before. Roots Protein Superfood. It's packed with protein, greens, electrolytes. I really need electrolytes right now, especially when I'm pregnant and tons of superfoods. So you can just add it to your morning smoothie, drink it after an exercise. It's quick. It's ready to go. You should know that they use whole food based ingredients that you can actually pronounce. So no nasty ass chemicals or sweeteners. And it tastes really, really good. If you add this to your smoothie, like Lauren's been doing, you're going to get 15 grams of protein, two full servings of fruits and vegetables, and a blend of eight of the most nutrient-dense superfoods in the world. The Roots Protein Superfood is an all-in-one powder, and it packs a lot of bang for its punch. So I'm a big fan of actually reading labels. I like to make sure I can pronounce everything, like I said earlier, and this is something where you can look at the labels, you know what you're seeing, and you can totally see why thousands of people trust Roots as their go-to protein. Yeah, guys, you really got to try this stuff. And as always, we have a special highly discounted offer just for our listeners. Get 20% off your entire order when you use code SKINNY at rootsnutrition.com. That's R-O-O-T-Z nutrition.com. Code SKINNY for 20% off your entire order. Again, that's rootsnutrition.com. Spell roots R-O-O-T-Z nutrition.com and receive 20% off your entire order with code SKINNY. Enjoy, guys. You're going to love this stuff. Anyway, great girl, right? But, you know, 
she wasn't really like a rocket scientist. Let's just say that, all right? I need a girl that's going to challenge me. I just do, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, you got your hands fucking full. I got my huckles out to you, right? But anyway, anyway, all right? Yeah, it's face facts, buddy, right? I love you. You're a good looking guy, but you got your fucking hands full. All right? We all know that, right? So anyway, so I respect you for it. You're still alive and standing for a few more years. We'll see. We'll see how long it lasts. <laughs> dead before you're 40, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, but happy go you're going with the smile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 She's fucking work. Yeah, yeah. Fucking, you're telling okay. me, anyway, so I said that I'm going to Wall Street. Now, I had to actually sell myself a job here. Because, like, let's face it, my, my resume is like a dental school dropout of just declared bankruptcy. All right, right? So I walk into this brokerage firm, and I go to my interview, and I have to, like, stick out. It's like 50 kids. Everyone wants this job. It's at a big firm, LF Rothschild. And I say to the guy, listen, you know, I'll do anything. I'll, I'll watch. I'll sell you stock right now. So I started selling the guy a stock. I so didn't that's, know. that's from the movie when they say, did you pitch a stock it's during It's true. First... I did that, right? And the guy's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. He goes, geez. I never heard anyone like this. He goes, I'll tell you what, either one of two things are going to happen to you. Either you're going to be the biggest broker in Wall Street history, or you're going to end up in jail. The guy's a fucking genius. He was right on both accounts, right? <laughs> and he hired me. That, is, that, is that a line from the movie? Um, I, I feel I like they said no, that. It's in my book, but, but, what, really he, okay. but what he's saying it, is both happened. Yeah, both happened. He was saying like, you end in jail would be a huge broker, right? <laughs> so he hires me, and I walk into the boardroom, and now I got these guys, like 60 kids there, and they're making like 60, 70, 80 grand a month. Bull walking to the 80s, right? And I have to sit up like, you know, over six to eight months, it's like a training program, right? So it's, I'm so broke. My wife and I were like, you know, at nighttime, I'm going into office buildings and selling costume jewelry door to door to pay the rent. I had no money. We could barely pay our rent. On the weekends, I go to the beach and make money, right? And finally, after this training program, getting treated like lower than pond scum, it's my first day as a broker, passed my test. Turns out to be October 1987, Black, Black Monday. Monday. Yeah, That's true. And then the stock market dropped 508 points. Just like that firm that was in LF Rothschild around for 112 years, out, right? Now I was panic-stricken because before that, even though I had no money, I felt good. Like I knew where I was going. Everyone knew I was going to be a big broker. I had a lot of sales ability. Everyone knew that. But now I was like, it doesn't seem like a big deal. But on that day... Money, yeah. money must have completely dried up. There's no well, you to guys are to. too young for this. They thought that it was going to be the next Great Depression. No one realized the market would bounce back, right? So when on the way home, I was in the fucking bus. I still, I still am traumatized from these days. I, I can't go on a bus. It freaks me out, right? And I remember on the bus, you could have heard a pin drop. Like, everyone was so nervous. Everybody in the free world knew that the market had crashed and the Great Depression was coming. Everyone but my first wife. She wasn't like a news bug. You know, she's watching Oprah and soap operas all day. So she just assumed that I broke the company record the first day. So she's waiting for me with a bottle of champagne, like our last dollar as she went and bought a bottle of champagne. I walk in the door, I'm like ready to collapse. She's like, did you break the record? Honey, are we rich yet? I'm like, oh my God, I collapsed in her arms and started to cry. Ugh. And that was really how it happened. And then from there, I, I was panic stricken and paralyzed with fear and self-doubt and self-loathing and couldn't move for about three hours because I didn't have more than that. We couldn't pay our rent. So I took a deep breath, started going through the help wanted section and stumbled upon an ad for a small firm in Long Island selling penny stocks. And that was how it all started. Like the movie, just like the movie. For people that are unfamiliar with penny stocks, can you explain in a nutshell what a penny stock is? Compared sure. To... Yeah, well, I mean- It's for companies it, it, that can't get on see, the NASDAQ, has, right? Yeah, the thing is, is that it's changed a little bit. The big thing is not so much the price, right? So yeah, penny stock is a stock that theoretically trades under a dollar. Like it's in pennies, 10 cents, 50 cents, right? But it, actually the context is much different because theoretically you could have a stock that Microsoft could be a penny stock. And in fact, like in some places like Australia, they have legitimate companies, the big companies that are trading at 30 cents a share. 
They're priced in dimes and pennies, right? In the United States, it's very different. When a company's a penny stock, it's typically been designed to be a piece of shit. It's not going to work. It's never going to work. There's way too many outstanding shares. This was never conceived as a legitimate enterprise. That's not true in places like Canada, the mining deals, where they have shares that trade at 50 cents, right? So in the U.S., back, and maybe things have changed somewhat. I don't think that much in the U.S., but the context was far worse than just a penny stock. But I didn't know that. I had no idea what a penny stock was. When I walked in, they said, we're selling penny stocks. I'm like, what's a penny stock? I knew as much as you did. Mm-hmm. I was trained in how to sell big stocks, like back then Kodak, which is now a business, or IBM, or whatever. So that's what I've been taught how to do. And the first thing that stuck out to me is when, so when the guy showed me the commission structure for the penny stock, it was like, if someone sent in hundred grand, you would keep $50,000 after his commission. Wow. And that was a reasonable size trade where I'd come from. And people would send in a quarter million all day long. It wasn't out, you know, yeah, I'll buy, give me 20,000 shares of XYZ stock. That could be a quarter million dollars, no big deal. So I said, you mean to tell me if I get someone to send in a hundred grand, I get 50? He's like, well, theoretically, but it doesn't work that way. You don't, no, we don't call people like that. We're calling average moms and dads. They invest $500 or so forth, right? I'm like, why? He goes, because rich people don't buy penny stocks. Now, as the normal me, I probably would have addressed that right then and not bought into it. But at that moment, I was so beaten down. I was like, fine, just give me the leads and let me, I couldn't pay my rent. I was like, fine, okay, great. Just let me, tell me who to call, I'll call them, right? And they hired me and they gave me a stack of leads of these people who were like the average moms and pops and who had written in requesting information on penny stocks that had huge upside potential and very little downside risk as the phrase goes, right? <laughs> That's the pitch from the movie Leo did. And then I sat down and wrote myself a pitch of what I thought people would want to hear. And in the same way, like with the meat business, when I opened up my mouth, like it, the words just, I mean, so the whole office, like as I started talking, like you, have, you know that weird feeling when people watching me before I knew it, the whole office had stopped. The manager was running with a tape recorder to tape me. I'm like, what the hell's going on here, right? And I was like a modern man among cavemen because I had been trained by the big firms. Is that Matthew McConaughey character real? Like, yes. Did he actually train you? Yes. There is a guy named Mark Hanna who's a great guy, hysterical. What happened to him? What's what's he up to? Can you interview him, please? Mm. You got to get him on the show. I really should. Mark's a cat. Mark ultimately came to work for me. Became a partner for a short time at Stratton. Great guy, lazy, but such a talent, like a natural talent, really a natural. Lots of martinis at lunch. Every the guy was a you know, he was like the sort of guy, like a great volcanic story. He came from a wealthy family from Brooklyn, like a kind of mob affiliated, not a mob, like just in that sort of sphere, right? His parents, his dad owned a club, a famous club called Pastels, I think, which is like where Saturday Night Fever was based on, right? So Mark's dad always had money his whole life. They go very wealthy. So Mark was like a gentleman. Like, you know, he wanted to get his nails done. Like, he was just a really great guy, right? And I remember he said, like, one day his dad, like, whatever, something happened. He lost all his money. He calls Mark in. He goes, Mark, I just want to let you know, I've taken a setback and lost most of the family money here. So yeah, he's like, how could you? He's like, that was like, you asshole, what's wrong with that? was Mark out of you. Okay, sorry, I didn't want to sidetrack you there. Yeah, he's really funny. But, you know, Mark was, the benefit I had of Mark Hanna, it was mostly tonality. And I watched Mark, because I wasn't allowed to sell at the workshop. I had to listen. So I was able to listen to Mark, who was really talented when it came to how he had the silky smooth way of, of speaking. It was almost like he was apologizing to you as he ripped your eyeballs out. It was like amazing. Like and give it, us like an example. Really like he'd quick. say, sir, I understand that you don't know me, but, but let me say, I want to be an asset to you, your family over the long term here. All I'm asking for, sir, is just give me one shot. It sounds and, like Taylor when he's trying to get laid. Yeah, right? 
<laughs> exactly. I showed you that thing about the Wolf of Wall Street for getting laid, right? It's like, but that was Marcus, sir. You know, all I could say is, you know, sir, you give me one shot and believe me, that was Mark. And then you'd see other people who just sucked. They're like, I'm telling you. And I was like, so I got to see both sides. And because I wasn't allowed to speak, I was really observant. So when finally my day came and the market crashed and I went to this firm, it all was bubbling inside my head and I had the natural ability. And it just came out, and that's how it started. This is the story in Robert Greene's book, The Laws of Human Nature, about the guy that was paralyzed that got to sit and watch. Well, he just sit there and observed and observed that's, and observed. And, and what ended up happening is he just became real fucking good at human nature. Yeah. And that's kind of what sounds like what happened to you. Exactly. And I think that really, you know, it's funny. In my one of the books I, I was writing that whole story, just got edited out because I, but I explained that one of the things I think that really led to the creation of the system I teach was that time frame of being forced to watch others sell and to see how most people just suck so badly. And I think the way I explain it now is that, you know, it's like almost a flawed internal communications platform that you have. Like communication, you have words that you say, you have tonality that you apply to those words that gets a certain point, of course. Then there's also body language. Let's keep body language out of it for a moment, right? Just so there's the tonality, how you say what you say, right? What happens with a lot of people is they have interesting words to say, and they are in their own mind, they're applying the appropriate tonality, but they're actually tone deaf. They think they sound a certain way and they don't. They think like, I'm really excited about this. And like, and to them, they think they sound like over the top excited. I'm like, they sound like they're, they're ready to fall asleep, right? So it's like almost like the words come out the way they should, but the tonality gets impeded somewhere. There's a disconnect. So a person like that will struggle greatly with getting their point across, with capturing people's attentions, with having charisma, with living an empowered life. So one of the beauties of what I teach is just that. It's like, you know, how do you essentially unlock? Because it's very easy once you realize what's going on. Because here's the deal. You don't have to learn tonality. Like there's all to like 29 tonalities. 10 of them we use again and again as we influence and persuade, right? You don't have to learn these. You already know them. It's just that you've used them by accident when you really felt the certain Like, for instance, I don't care how poor you are with communicating. You've always had a time or a few times in your life where you were just so certain where you spoke certain. It was oozing out of you, just so sure of yourself, and certainty came oozing out of you. You had other times when you really felt empathy for someone, and you're like, I am this, oh my God, tell, uh-huh, mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, John, you've had times when you told someone a secret, and you're like, Jim, let me tell you, I have something pleasing for the call today. So we've all used these tonalities when we've really felt them. So what I teach people with the system, the straight line, is how to use them on purpose. In other words, when should you apply these tonalities? And at first, you do it consciously. But once you show someone, wow, consciously, here's how eventually their unconscious mind will catch on. And once it does, it becomes fluid. That's, and that's a gift you give people because I just couldn't imagine. I think it's the saddest thing would be to go through life with so many people that are brilliant, talented, great ideas, but they almost die with their music on their lips. They can't get it out because they don't know how to share their message with people. And that, I think, is the true beauty of, of what sales really is outside just of selling as a salesman, just like communicating effectively, you know? And some people have that more of a, as a natural, like some people are more natural than others. Of course, of I mean, course. Like some people are unnatural, some people are awful, and then you have that full continuum in between. So the question really is, is where do you land on the continuum? 
And does it serve you or not serve you? Is it impeding your life in some way? Is it not allowing you to be as effective as you could be? Are you working twice as hard because no one wants to listen to you because when you open your mouth, you're like, you're screaming. Look at this way. Let's say you have a message has intrinsic value. Whatever that, let's say it has intrinsic value X, right? That's the message. If I was the one delivering that message, guess what? There's a multiplier. You, the perceived value would probably triple because the way I would explain this to you, you'd be like, wow, damn, oh my God, holy shit, right? Versus someone that was a very poor communicator, it would be a, divided by a third. The value is still there, but either the communicator can enhance it or detract from it. That's really sales in the non-sales world. So when you were selling back then, do you think you knew all this subconsciously? Yes. You knew? Yes. Subconsciously, yeah. So how long after you start you know, basically selling penny stocks and making these big commissions, do you start opening your own shop? So it's happened pretty quickly. What happened was, then in the first month, I made like $60,000 myself. My money problems disappeared. And then I was approached within a few months from the manager who said, hey, you know, I got this idea. I want you to train the sales people. I'll run the, the stock markets. I will you know, we'll get rich. I've never seen anyone train and sell like you. At this point, I just went been bankrupt. I was like, you know, and it's interesting because I almost had formed some limiting beliefs about myself from that failure. Despite all the successes I've had as a kid and the anchor experiences of being an entrepreneur, one failure. It knocks you off your pedestal. Yeah. I, I was like, so maybe I'm maybe I'm just a great salesperson. Maybe I'm not meant to run my own business, right? So I hesitated for a short time. But like most successful people, and I'm sure you guys have done this, you just step into your fears, you overcome your own limiting beliefs. You know, there's two ways to overcome limiting beliefs. You can do it yourself, which we do all the time, and empower people will do that eventually. Or you can use people who are experts at that, life coaches that really do the real deal, the real version. People like myself really understand the dynamics of that, and you can help actually help people overcome it. Either way, you know, I did it naturally. So I opened up my own firm about five or six months later, except this time I did everything right. Every mistake I made with the first go around, I did the exact opposite on this go around. And I started the firm selling penny stocks to average moms and pops, and we were doing well. That went on for about two or three months. And one day I'm lying in bed and I'm like, wait a second. Like, you know, I remember that for now I got my mojo back. Like, why are we calling poor people? Why don't we call rich people? They have more money to invest. It seemed counterintuitive what we were doing. So I tried that and to my shock, it didn't work. Rich people would not buy penny stocks. They did not buy them. I said, all right, I get that. 10 cents, probably a piece of shit they think. I, I said, maybe I should reverse split the stock and make it a $5 stock. The value of a company is based on the price times the number of outstanding shares. You can raise the price of a stock without increasing its value by you reduce the number of outstanding shares. It's called a reverse split. So I took the stock and we reverse split it up to five. I said, maybe people will like it more at five. And they did a little bit, but not enough that it was like six of one, half a dozen. There was nothing monumental that I could switch to calling rich people. They really didn't want to buy it. That did shock me. And I was lying in bed again doing my thinking. And I was like, you know, I think I know what it is. I said, you know, L.F. Rothschild, right? I watched this happen. They're calling people all across the country. But Jordan Belfort, Mark Hanna, they don't know you. But calling from L.F. Rothschild, who they do know, the Rothschild banking name, and you're selling a company like IBM, which they'd heard of before. So you have one strike against you, two in your favor. Okay, fair enough. You could open up a constantly. But now you're Stratton Oakmont, Jordan Belfort selling a $6 stock, ah, three strikes and you're out. Right? And I said, I got to tip the odds in my favor. So I said, let me start by not selling a $6 stock. Let me start by selling a bigger stock that they've all heard of. So I found a company that you all know, Eastman Kodak. Back then it was a blue chip. Now it's had a business, ironically. Yeah, gotcha, and there was a great story about why the stock was depressed. And I wrote this great script 
and I started calling rich people. And also as far as Stratton went, so, you know, I can What's the script? The script, well, well, the script- Do you remember the, it? Yeah, you know, the script for Stratton, sure, was like, you know, I had to come up with a reason why they never Can heard you give me the inflection? Like, pretend I'm on the other line. I'm like, I'm sitting around, I'm watching Oprah, like your wife. Yeah. I'm watching a soap opera and my phone rings. Let's say you're a rich person, so you might target market, right? I'm a rich person I say, in Jim, my I say, Jim, hey, Jordan Bubba calling from Stratton, Oakland, how you doing today? You say, all right, say, Jim, listen, you probably haven't heard of Stratton because for the last 10 years, we're strictly an institutional block trading firm dealing with select banks, insurance companies, and pension funds. However, we've recently opened up our doors, Jim, to the more substantial private investor. And all I want to do right now, with your permission, of course, is send you out some information on the company, Stratton, okay, along with a copy of our track record, and then get back to you down the road next time we're making a recommendation to our institutional clients. Does that sound fair enough? I got to say... <laughs> I gotta say, Leo fucking nailed you. Leo yeah, did nail did. you. Did, right? Okay, sorry, I just needed to hear so that. that was I... the, so then they'd say, yeah, sure, go ahead. Now, what could I really send them? Now that story was true. See, I didn't start Stratton, I bought it. And it was in business for 10 years. It was an institutional trading firm dealing with banks. And so I found the best version of the story. Like, you know, you haven't heard of us because we're shit-ass securities. It was no, you know, you probably haven't heard of us before because for the last days, we were strictly an institutional trading firm dealing with banks, insurance companies, and pension funds. Oh, that makes sense. There's a reason why. It's called a justifier. However, we've recently, oh, were, how, see, then you'll lower your, you know, we recently opened up our doors to the most substantial private investor. And Jim, all I want to do right now, with your permission, of course. I send, love the with your permission, <laughs> of course. Send you some information on, the, on our company, Stratton Securities, right? And then get back to you next time we're making a recommendation to our big client. Does that sound reasonable? He goes, yeah, sure, why not? Great. Just a couple of quick questions. You've said, don't waste your time in the future. Ask him three or four questions. What do you, uh, great. great. Great, Jim. Next time we speak, I'll have some great you. Have a great day. Next time. Then you wait like 10 days, call him back, say, hey, Jim. And now here was the magic, though. So rather than trying to conjure something up and lying, I just sent them a letter saying, great, speaking to that day, blah, blah. And I sent them a book in a FedEx, a book, actual book, right? But why? Because it created reciprocity. So when they got the book and you tried to, because it's very hard to get through the gatekeeper twice sometimes. So when we call back, these are wealthy businesses, we're calling B2B, right? Businesses. So when you call a business owner and you say, hey, is Jim around? Who's going, oh, Jordan from Strang? He'll notice that. Oh, Jim, it's the guy who sent you the book. He's like, oh, all right, fine. He feels indebted to you. Just not the buy, but the pick up. Hey, Jim, Jordan Bowman, how you doing today? He's all right, great. Now, Jim, if you recall, we spoke last week. I said I'd get back to you when I had something that was really over the top great. Does that ring a bell? He goes, yeah, great. Well, Jim, the reason for the call today, <laughs> something just came across my desk. It is perhaps the best thing I've seen in the last six months. You have 60 seconds. I want to share the idea with you. Got a minute? He's like, yeah, shoot, go ahead. Great. Name of the company, Eastman Coton. That was it, right? So I tested that idea, and guess what? People started buying like mad. Quick break to talk about Ulta Beauty, because who doesn't like Ulta Beauty? I mean, it's definitely one of my favorites. So Ulta Beauty is dedicated to bringing its guests the most exciting new brands, which is why they just launched this platform, you guys. And it's an entire platform built to help beauty lovers discover more. So it's called Sparked. It's at Ulta Beauty, like I said, and it's the new destination for curated need-to-know brands. So think brands that are on the pulse, you know, they're, they're ahead of the curve. Many of them are exclusive to Ulta Beauty, and they each have their authentic stories and products. So here's the deal. Sparked collections will continuously refresh throughout the year with their first assortment. These are the brands that you need to know about, okay? They're special. They're destined to be the next celebrated must-haves. So it's, it's very exclusive and evolving, which we love. And their collections will include cosmetics, skin, and hair products. 
you can ignite your curiosity and discovered sparked in select Ulta Beauty stores. So at the Skinny Confidential, I always like to be ahead of the curve and on the pulse. So this very much sparks my interest. Ignite your curiosity and discover sparked in select Ulta Beauty stores. If you guys want to check this out, you can explore the whole virtual world of sparked on ulta.com slash sparked. It's a unique interactive experience where you learn about all these exciting brands and founders and their authentic stories and products. I think this is very, very much on brand. And with that, let's get back into the show. This is a really good like practice for for men that need to get a girl. So Taylor, you should be taking notes. Use your inflection. Our producer, our producer Taylor, Taylor throw yeah. in with your permission, of course. Taylor, what she's saying is that desperation is so obvious. Ring off you. She's she's just telling the world. Yeah. With the permission, of course, is of course the best. That's part. a good one. Nowadays, especially, you know, yeah. in the old days, fuck permission. Yeah. So, so let me. Well, so you let, like it or not? So let's fast track it a little yeah. bit because I want to talk about sure. when this starts taking off and you uh, guys start going. So what wild. happens? Here's what happens. So long story short. So I did that, and, my, and I recruited my junior partner, Danny, the Jonah Hill character, right? Right, guy. Is that true? The way you guys met, where he said, "Show me that pay stub." Yes, exactly. Exactly. Oh, Except well. it happened not in. It happened in the playground of our apartment building, not in a diner. Okay. But it was exactly like that. I showed him the pay stub, and that was all right. He's, he quit his job that day, right? And he, true to life, he actually was married to his first cousin. Wow. He was so funny. This guy. You still know the guy? You still? Yeah, he's yeah. Yeah, he lives far away. But he's a, he was a very funny guy. And then some of the things that came out, he's like, yeah, you know, uh, can't leave on the institution steps. He was like that. If the kids were, he was really, really hardcore, funny guy. And he's got two wonderful kids who actually live in LA, right? Okay. Great kids, right? Anyway, we started doing this. We opened a lot of accounts. The plan was we called them back 10 days later and say, and I don't want to get all the particulars, like, you know, you had schmooze calls in the middle, right? To touch base. Hey, everything's going well. But then you call them back 10 days later and say, Jim, hey, two reasons for the call, something, you know, number one, I want to quickly update you on Kodak right now, the stock's where we bought it, blah, 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 right, right? Tell them the story where the code about Kodak. And second reason, Jim, something else just came across my desk this morning. It's a bit different in nature, more speculative, one of our own investment banking deals. If you have 60 seconds, I want to share it with you. You got a minute? He's like, yeah, true, go ahead. Now, the idea I had was because you're now his broker, he perceives you as not a penny broker. He's like, yeah, sure, go ahead. Say, great, Jim, name of the company, Ventura Entertainment. It's actually a West Coast company located here, okay? And anyway, the biggest trade in penny stock history, and remember, Ventura was a penny stock. We split it to five and did this sort of two-step process with a loss leader, I guess you could say, was Kodak was the loss leader. So the biggest trade was like, I think I did a, like a $6,000 trade. It was like broke all the records, right? The average trade of a penny stock was $500. So Danny and I have a stack of leads because we, we opened up accounts in Kodak, but made no commission from that. But he had 50, I had 50. So we start dialing. He gets the first connect. I'm in my office. He's in the boardroom. So I'm watching him through the window and he's talking and I'm just watching him. He's talking. About two minutes later, he hangs up the phone. He's got this kind of a weird look on his face and he, and he walks towards my office. He's holding a buy ticket. So I guess the guy bought something. He said, what happened? He goes, I don't know. He goes, the guy bought $120,000 worth and apologized for working so small. And in that moment, I knew. You knew like, that you were going to just be flooded with I money. was like, oh my fucking God, I've cracked the code. I made on that trade $70,000 in like a minute. You couldn't compare the profit from like the ability to call a rich person that could deploy. And by the way, like I said- And apologize to you for only spending 100 grand, right? Versus like I scraped together $500. I had 12 people working me, the, the Stratonites, right? Who had the average IQ of Forrest Gump on three hits of acid, basically, right? <laughs> And what happened was I like, you know, I looked out into the boardroom. I saw my strategy. and wow, all I have to do is take these 12 kids and teach them how to call rich people 
and I'm going to be the richest guy. The rest will be history. So how fast does this all start pouring? Uh, yeah, how, like, I the, also want to know thing? how you teach them. Well, I'll tell you, this is what happened. So I, I looked, I said, wow, all I got to do is, is teach them how to do what I'm doing. And the rest, as they say, will be history. Well, as they also say, easier said than fucking done. As it turned out, trying to train a bunch of barely post-adolescent nincompoops, okay, who dropped out of high school to close the toughest, richest, meanest investors in the world, you know, CEOs, it turned out to be not just difficult, but fucking impossible. After one month of them trying to close, they hadn't opened up a single account. And meanwhile, Danny and I were still opening up accounts like water. And that baffled me. So that, see, what happened was I was teaching sales I was a great sales trainer even before I invented the straight line. But I was teaching a different system. It didn't have a name, but it was great. But the thing with the system is like, you don't know how great it really is until you stress it to the point of fracture. It was good enough to get an average mom or pop to part with $500 because the impulse buy, no big deal, right? But like any other engineering project that goes awry, like, you know, the bridge collapsed, like, oops, we didn't, we thought it was strong, but one too many cars on the bridge, the wind is blowing one mile an hour, and catastrophic failure. What happened to me? The system I taught had a catastrophic failure. It didn't work. I could not use the system to take average kids with no education and get them to close rich people. And then I went on a quest for about a month as they were in closing, trying to find some other system. And the worst part was that Already, the system I had back then was infinitely better than anything else I saw, so I was stuck. So it was like this four-week period where everyone was negative. They wanted to quit, and every morning I give a meeting, and then every afternoon I give another meeting. And then I give these marathon trainings at nighttime, and for like four hours, every, once every two weeks, I said, come back. We need a marathon because you know we can't take this. The rich people are assholes, right? So I agreed to come back, and I knew it was like a make-or-break moment because either I was going to crack the code for this or they would want to go back to selling penny stocks. It made me so angry because I knew I was onto this big thing. Long story short, I went back that night and it was in that evening where something happened that a thought occurred to me and it had to do with, you know, they were getting hit with objection after objection and I was as well, but not in the way they were. They were getting batted around and I had this thought and I looked at these guys and I said, don't you guys get it? Every sale's the same. And they're like, what? I'm like, guys, every sale is the same, watch. It's a straight line. And I drew this long line on the center of the board and I put a big thick X on either end. It was a visual representation. Of exactly what would happen in the sales call. Yeah. Okay. And see what was happening was I was such a natural born closer. It became so easy to me that- You knew what me, to do at each before, point. Like every, it didn't matter what they said. I knew exactly how to react, how to sort of you know corral the sale, move it forward down this line and there was something about this line that when I drew a line, it just completely redefined how I taught people how to sell. And I said to them, you know, guys, you got four seconds. The crux of it, there's so many different aspects of the straight line. It's an amazing program. It changes people's lives today. I mean, it's amazing. It really is. But the crux of it was that I have, and you could see it today, but back then it was the same. I have a certain way of talking that when you hear me, you're like, damn, that guy sounds, you heard with Leo. He said, wow, he sounded sharp, right? That's a strategy to sound sharp, to sound on the ball, to be enthusiastic, but not yelling and screaming, enthusiasm, bottled enthusiasm, right? And also an expert in your field. So unless that comes across in the first few seconds, you're done. The prospect, in this case, these wealthy bizmen would say, ah, this guy's a novice, and they would take control. So if the other party takes control of the conversation, guess what? 
every sale becomes different. Because now they're controlling. You become reactive versus everyone can apply this to dating too. Of course. Yeah. Of course it's for dating. And, and that, there's a great you saw a thing online you with, with it Stevie. Me. It's hysterical. This guy did a we're gonna link it out. Yeah, it's really funny. So here's what it is. It's communication strategy. Now when it comes to selling, it took these what happens I went through a four hour marathon. They taped me. And it was late at night. So I was like, I hope this wow, it sounds pretty unique, right? Next morning I gave another meeting. They taped me again at 9 30, they picked up the phones and what happened next was like I'd never seen anything like it. These kids who couldn't close the damn door went on an account opening spree that resulted in, you know, two movies. <laughs> like, so know, when you blow the doors off this I and mean, you crack the code and the money starts pouring in, like how fast does your life start escalating? Like immediately cars, days. Boats, when does the when does the cocaine come in? What kind of dirty mind? Because you know what that means. I have I, I have a lot of questions. Okay, okay I'm, I'll answer all of that. Okay. Fully <laughs> and when, when do the doors completely come pulling, off? When do the doors come off? The doors come off when I meet a guy. I'm on vacation in... It, uh, is this second wife or first still? First wife Okay, still. go on. Okay. And I meet this guy, and his name was Elliot Levine. And he was the chairman of Perry Ellis, men's clothing, CEO of Perry Ellis, right? One of the most brilliant garmentos ever but a complete degenerate. <laughs> and I had to love him for it. because everyone Sounds fun. He sounds fun. He was like- Is he, he single? He's like 68 right now. But huh? the Elliot Levine was the guy, he could wear a diaper and a bow tie. Say, That's the latest thing. Everyone wants to wear a diaper. He was like such a charismatic and a brilliant guy, but the most self-destructive person. Like Elliot, and I'm not exaggerating. He would bet on like, eight ants dancing on a postage stamp. So who would win the dance off? He would bet on anything, this guy. Like he was constantly betting, like tossing coins, 10,000 a toss. Like, so when I met him, I was in the Bahamas and my junior partner, his nickname was the blockhead, we called him because he had like a blockhead and it was dumb as a block too, but his head was like so square, you could drop a plumb line down and it would hit his fucking cheek the whole time, right? <laughs> so the blockhead says to me, check this guy, it's like James Bond. So I run to the casino and I see this young guy. You have to understand the scene I walk into. He's a handsome guy back then, right? He was in his probably mid, late 30s or mid 30s, right? And he's sitting there with about a million dollars in chips on the table. He's playing seven hands, 10,000 a hand. And his wife is standing by him. She's blonde, Jewish, emaciated to near perfection, all right? And her shirt, she's got an ace of spades and a jack of diamonds, like studded, like, it was like out of a fucking, like a character of a movie, right? I was like, holy shit. And I'm watching this guy play and he's up like 500 grand. I'm like, I, I, I thought I was a big game. I'd give him a $500. Yeah. Holy shit. Next day, he comes out to the pool and he just sits beside me, right? We start talking and we hit it off. He'll take a like to him. He's much older than me. And he told me what I was doing. Anyway, we, about a week later, we met in, this, in the city. It turned, you know, it turns out he was a huge player in the garment center. He takes me out for lunch into the garment center and... Um, we're sitting there and he's, we're talking casually and he's like, I'm like, what, what did he just, it was like, if David Copperfield could do cocaine by sleight of hand, he was so smooth, this guy, he's like, as he's talking to me, he took that, he had like this little belay he carried with a Perry Ellis collar stay. He's like, anyway, talking, it's like four DHs. No one's like, what happened there? Did he do, he did coke, it was beautiful to watch. It was gorgeous to watch this guy do coke, right? <laughs> Holy shit, right? So next thing I know, he's like, here, I can't, I can't do coke. He goes, try, I'm like, all right, fine. I'm very impressionable, right? So I was, all right, fine, so I did coke. And then once that happens, I'm a bad person. You know, once the cocaine starts, it's terrible. I just, I just want to do terrible things with women and the dirtier, the better. So it was the middle of the day and I was like a nice guy. I love my wife and everything, but you know, I had some coke in my system. So he's like, well, let's go to see Gina girls. I'm like, who's Gina girls? Oh, you'll love Gina girls. It was a madam in the city, right? 
Next thing I know, I'm with two hookers, one sitting on my face. I'm just, I'm a lost my, and I'm just like, like the dirtier, the better. I'm just snorting coke. Although I didn't even come home that night. And like, you know, that's that, and that was that. And then that was a blip. I'm like, wow, this guy's a, a maniac. He goes, hey, next day, let's go gamble together. We take a chopper to AC. Went with Trump, by the way. He was in the chopper with us. It was his casinos, right? Oh, Christ. Okay, he owned the casinos, right? We flew down there and gambled like just wild, man. We did massive quantities of cocaine. His drug was Quaaludes. He got I wanted to ask you about Quaaludes. That's actually one so of the So that's really how the Quaaludes started. So, and he was at the Quaaludes, and we started doing Quaaludes. And what, what does a Quaalude do to you? Because you can't, can you, you can't even find them anymore right thank god for that because i'd be taking them if you could <laughs> you know no, no, that's so great they were like the ultimate euphoric high so imagine you could take like five beers and distill it down to like its essence of this and inject it main like buzzing and so euphoric right and the thing is you wouldn't get tired from it afterwards like you could be really fucked up slurring and drooling and then like an alley like, hey how you doing so there was no hangover from them right and then you could balance out the tiredness with a little coke which made perfect sense to me right so I started doing it to balance, right? And Ellie and I just became like running partners. In fact, Steve Madden Shoes is Steve Madden Shoes because of Elliot. So I was the founder of Steve Madden with Steve together. We founded it. And I was tapping Elliot's brain, which is brilliant. Mark was really came with the strategy that drove Steve Madden Shoes. So, so El- what ultimately, you're going crazy. You're making a lot of money. Like what ultimately was the downfall? What like got federal agencies involved and what got them paying attention to what you were doing? Well, the big one was just that someone was bad luck that someone else got indicted, but ultimately it was the smuggling money overseas. And that's what Agent Coleman said. Like to me, when he was on my, we're friends now, the FBI agent and I are friends, right? He was on my podcast last week. I think it's hilarious. Yeah, he's a great guy. And it's really, really interesting that his take on the whole thing. And it wasn't the stock stuff. That was whatever, you know, they weren't, it was SEC stuff. It wasn't like really that bad. I guess in their eyes, the FBI was going to go after, right? But I smuggled money, the cash, to Switzerland. And that opened up the whole money laundering stuff. And uh, that was really it. And so at this point, just like walk me through this, because through the movie. So at this point, you're on wife number two. Yes. So what happened was, it was just like the movie. I started throwing these wild parties in the Hamptons, right? Just and it was God. Totally, I wish I could have gone. They to were those really parties. fun. They were oh. so great. I had the police working for me. So it's like they was like, "Wow, there's so much shit going." Like, I'm sorry, we can't hear you. Like, right? so the parties were just insane. They got bigger and bigger and bigger. Right? It'd be thousands. Really of irritated that I wasn't around and didn't it was know you then. Really, yeah. it, was, it was great, you know. And and it also was a different time. This is when sexual harassment was considered like in vogue. You know, but I'm not saying that's, that's a good thing or anything, but no one at Stratton got harassed. I'll tell you that much. It did not happen. Everyone fucked everyone. If you harass someone, you were fired. That Taylor, was too bad you didn't work for Jordan. Yeah, but it was really interesting. It was just so much. Everyone was young, all these fine looking animals. Like, You're a fine looking animal, a fine looking animal. Like, Let's just all fuck, right? I mean, it was really bad. Like, you know, you never knew what was going to happen when you opened up a bathroom stall. Is so- your second wife mad that everyone's fucking each other? No, no, no. So when I met the second wife, I met, met the second wife at a party. Okay. She walks in and she was very beautiful. My I first, Googled her. She's beautiful. Yeah. And imagine her when she was 21, right? And we all look better when we were 21, I guess, right? Except for you, you're getting better every year. Thank yeah, you. You know, of course, you know. Anyway, I gotta get, <laughs> get, get back my brownie voice. Yeah. Smooth, smooth up. Know, with your permission, of course. Uh, with your permission, of course, right? <laughs> As I was saying, so she was very beautiful. And, and I was like, fuck. I was like, you and, and my first wife was beautiful too. But at that point, I just wanted longer legs, blonder hair. I was, I was, it was idiocy. I don't think any woman really could have made me happy at that point in my life. I just was more, bigger, better, this and that. Right? So, and she became my mistress for a short time. And then I fell in love with my mistress and I 
left my first wife exactly like the movie. She pulled up in the limousine and the door opens and like, it was just awful, right? Anyway, that ended marriage one and then she came on the scene and she was a very good running partner for me. You know, she was the right wife at the right time. And she gave me two of the most amazing children in the world. Why, you know, just, and they're amazing. So I'll always love her for that. And we had a very, very dysfunctional marriage that, I mean, it's hard to say, cause like, I think that both of us are probably, you know, listen, I, I try not to reframe it. But I think we always reframe what happened in the past. I know she, cause to me, I think her version is completely full of shit. She's so full of shit about the whole thing. I mean, she's a therapist now and trying to make it. She was like, it's like a hostage. I mean, please. Okay. I mean, it's like, just not true. Okay. I mean, you know what I'm saying? I was no gem and she was no gem. Okay. And she knew full well what was going on. All right. And blah, 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 blah. So, you know, again, I'm not saying I was a model citizen, but she was no model citizen either. Takes two to tango. Right. My first wife was an innocent victim. That I will tell you. She she was an innocent victim, not the second. She was a mercenary. So I want to know, after all of this comes crumbling down and you have to go to jail, what is it like in jail for you? Are you isolated from everyone else or were you like in the yard with all no, these different no, people? No, no, no. Tommy Chong was my bunkmate. You know Chong? Chong? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, yeah, we, you know, yeah. So, so what happens? I go to jail. And it was a, it was a white. Kind of, where, where, where is it like a white collar jail? Ooh. Okay, so. It was a totally cool jail. They had tennis courts. I had a butler, believe it or not. I want to go to jail. It's not so. So I said to a, you know, I said to a friend when I was going to jail, you know, he's probably going to get sentenced to something he did recently. I said, it's not that, you know, for what you did, it's not, so you go to real jail, it's a very different thing, right? But in the white collar, you know, it's not, when I say white collar, it's not really the right word. It's like, it's a nonviolent offenders jail for people with short sentences. You get it? Yeah, you don't have to worry about getting. There is no, no one lifts a finger in anger. It's more about like, you know, can we get Rosemary from the God to cook? Seriously, I mean, I had a butler, I had a masseuse, but that being said, it still sucked because it was jail, but you make the best of it. You get, you get it? Because when you have money in jail, you can get anything you want. I mean, in terms of, you know, people will do anything for like for five cans of tuna, I'll make your bed every single day and bring you cappuccino. And one guy was cooking, this guy was catching squab, I shit you not. This guy was, it was David. In fact, Tommy was on my podcast. He was catching squirrels in the yard and cooking us. To oh, eat yeah. squirrels? Mm -hmm. yeah. Is squirrel good? Well, I don't know, because by the time I got there, there was really no squirrels left. But Tommy had been through the whole squirrel cave. He got there before me. Tommy Chong's just chomping down squirrels? Yeah, so Tommy, by the way, is the best. So what happened was he was in jail before me. He got there like too much before me, right? Marijuana, marijuana beef? So, not even the stupidest thing ever. His kid was selling bongs, but uh. across state lines. Not even drugs. Anyway, because he's Tommy Chong, right? They made him an example, right? Wonderful guy. And... When I got there, we were both very high profile. So I guess the administrator, Mrs. Strickland, she was a great lady. I think she passed away from brain cancer. But she decided that the best way to keep an eye on both of us was to put us together in the same cell. So she moved someone out of a cell and put us together. So we had this, like, we were, like, in this, I wouldn't call it privilege, but let's just say as close as you can, where the woman was very, treating me very, us very well. And Tommy was my bunkmate, right? So the first few days of us being together, you know, we tell each other stories and, you know, I have him rolling on the floor with some of my stories of my insanity. And the third or fourth day, he goes, you know, I, I honestly thought you were making this shit up. But my wife Googled you and it's all there. I can't, I can't believe it. He goes, you got to write a book. I'm like, really? I'm like, I didn't think my life was that weird. Because like, you know, when it's your life, you're just like, I'm like, I don't know. Really? That's, what I, that's my life. He goes, oh my God, it's crazy. I'm Tommy Chong. I'm saying your life Hold is crazy. Hold on for a second. Jordan, Martin Scorsese <laughs> I know. did a fucking movie on you. I and, know. and Leonardo DiCaprio played you. Your life's pretty fucking crazy, man. I know, but at the time... It's like there's little steps you take and you can become desensitized to your own sanity. 
I won't deny I knew that most people don't sink yachts. And so I, I said that was a bit strange. When that happened. I think strange things just happened to me. I didn't really quite understand what was going on. I was almost like a little kid. How'd you sink a yacht? Taking it out into a storm because I was high on quaaludes. <laughs> I was in what's called the movement phase. Like with quaaludes, you have these phases. You have this, you have the tingle phase. So you take a quaalude, right? And you start to tingle. It's really a force of greatest, right? Then you get what's called the slur phase, where you just say, I love you, I love you, you love her, I love you, right? And you're slurring, you're like baby slur. You slur, it's fine, I have babies, she slurs. She sounds good, I can slur too, no big deal, right? Then you get into what's called the drool phase. Where you start to get a little more fucked up. You're like, drool, but you're like, no, baby's drool, I can draw it. Then you have what's called unconsciousness. That's phase four. And you can actually get past phase four by doing coke at this strategic moment, right? And those are the phases of a quaalude high, right? Then there's this other phase, very rare, happens only once in a while when the drugs hit you the wrong way. It becomes having, it's like the drug-induced equivalent of having ants in your pants. You can't sit fucking still. But what happened was I ended up going to Rome to go on a, like a two-week cruise with the boat. The movie's completely fictionalized with that wild. It's true, the boat sank, but it wasn't, they had some other reason of trying to tie loose ends together in the movie, right? But I was just there to a vacation, right? We were in Rome, and the plan was to go to Sardinia. And we went down, this was eight of us, you know, my wife and three of our couples, friends, right? And when someone was, oh my God, why is the water so rough in the harbor? That's, I look and there's like white caps in the harbor. And that was when I realized like, fuck, I'm in the movement phase. I said, we have to, like, I felt like this terrible fear, like almost anxiety attack, that if I stood in the harbor, in the harbor I would die. So when we get to the ship, my wife runs out, she goes, Captain Mark, you know, is it too rough to make the crossing? And he's like, well, and I'm like, I said, Mark, I said, if we don't move, I will die. I said, can we make it? He goes, yeah, we'll make it. We'll break a few plates. But I said, fucking let's go. He goes, let's go. It'll be a great adventure. And that was how it started, right? So it was like eight to 10 foot chop. So I went, got in the boat and, you know, took four more ludes because that's what I did when I got in the boat. So was the appropriate move at the moment. Went to the top deck, drank a few Bloody Marys, passed out cold. <laughs> I woke up about two hours later to the feeling of sea spray on my face. I'm like, what the fuck? I'm like 50 feet up and all of a sudden a wall of water comes crashing down, boom. And that was how it started. Meanwhile, so I fell asleep up top. The storm turned into a freak class 4-7 gale with like 30 foot waves and 80 mile. An hour. It was just the craziest thing. So meanwhile, I go back downstairs now into the main salon, right? And there on the leopard print carpet. It was like a really big boat, 160 foot boat, right? 160 foot boat, right? My wife and six other people, seven, eight, right? They tied themselves together with a rope. Not that fucking smart, right? I'm like, and they're on the thing and they're, and they're crying and this plates are like decorative frisbees. No one it? thought to get you? No, I was sleeping. No, they couldn't even move. It was that, it was impossible to move. And you're, they, and you're whacked out on quaaludes. I'm like, time. what happened? I'm like, the wife said, I'm going to kill you. What did you do to us? You forced us. I'm like, all right, calm down, calm down. Anyway, Long story short, we started crawling up to go see the captain. We had a crawl, couldn't even walk, right? We get to the bridge and the captain's like, what happened, Captain Boy? He's like, oh, we're in trouble now. We're in the shit. And he's like, a freak storm kicked up and it's only getting worse. I'm like, well, can we turn around? He goes, we can't, because if we turn around, we'll get broadside, we'll tip over. I'm like, oh, fuck it, right? Whatever, so we're now on the deck and, and I'm like, my friend Rob was there, was my partner in drug crime. Like, this guy's like, before we went on this trip, I had to go on a last minute drug collection. So we properly armed with all our bag full of drugs. So like, Rob, you have the Coke. Like, we started doing Coke as the, I was just so crazy. I said, I didn't want to die sober, right? So I'm getting high as kites as the thing's banging this way and that. And after like an hour and a half of this boat, just like being ripped apart, all of a sudden the captain's like, shit, rogue wave. I'm like, what's a rogue wave? I'm like, oh, fuck it. I like to sigh. Some like gigantic wall of water comes as he turns into it. And he, 
guns it. We start going up and it just flipped over and the boat flips over. And now like basically we are like half caps of turn back up on a side, right? And he's like, you're right. We're like, yeah, yeah, we're right, right? Then the engineer comes up from the bottom. We had a crew of 12, right? He's like, we lost the front porthole. We're going down by the head. And I was like, yes. Like, cause I fucking hated this boat. Like insurance money, right? And so the captain's like, mayday, mayday, yacht nadine going down. Anyway, so they now had to come rescue us. And they sent out the uh, actual Coast Guard and, and they try to lower the basket, you know? Well, it's like the movie's not quite. It's fucking harder than that. Because when the wind is howling, it's 50 feet that way. They couldn't get the basket to land on the boat. They ran out of gas, right? So now they left. He goes, all right, we have to go into the rubber refs. I'm like, the rubber fucking refs. It's like 50 foot waves now, right? Puts the first rubber raft in. We all go down to like the back deck. It washes away. He's like, all right, that's not going to work. He goes, wait, go back up to the top now. We go back up to the top, right? He's like, all right, I just got a call from the, they're saying the Navy. The Italian Navy SEALs are coming to rescue us. The special forces, right? So we're like, all right, you, we have to push the helicopter over the side. We had a helicopter and a plane on the boat, right? So we push the helicopter over the side to make room for the landing, right? So now they say you can only take what you can carry. No luggage. Now, my wife had already lost her luggage on the way there. So she just bought like $50,000 worth of new clothes, right? So now that's gone. Like, all right, fuck it. Now, on the boat, I had a, a quarter million in cash, artwork, valuables, paperwork. I look at my friend Rob. I said, Rob, you got the quaaludes? He's like, no, I thought you had. I said, Rob, where are the goes during your statement? I said, forget the fucking loots. Like, I could not be stuck in this country without loots. He's like, I'll get the loots. Ten minutes later, I'm like, where's fucking Rob? I go downstairs. He's on the stairs with his pants. And he's pissing on the carpet. I'm like, what are you doing? He goes, I just always wanted to do something like that. I'm like, get the fucking loose. He goes, all right, fine. So he, <laughs> so, he goes, so he goes downstairs, right? Comes back like a minute later. He goes, I, I got shocked. I couldn't, there's a short circuit. It's flooded. I can't get the pills. I'm like, soldier, you fucking go. I don't care unless you're going to die from the shit. You're right. You're right. What was I thinking? He goes, like, just do me a favor. You just met this girl, Shelly, who was his girlfriend back then. She was a total mismatch from Rob. Shelly had to walk around quoting the Bible all day, right? Anyway, he's like, just get Shelly a breast job. If I die, I said, fair enough, right? I agreed to that. So he goes down. He comes back up with a bag of 150 loose hands on and his third degree burns on his too, right? <laughs> so now we go back up to the top, right? So anyway, long story short, I mean, it goes, I mean, the story goes on and on here, okay? Well, how, how much did not, I mean, like, how much did not make the movie? Oh my I mean, God, it's so much. I mean, there's political corruption involved. We got to have you back in here to so, just to dive into all this shit. You know, at the end of the day, listen, you know, it's funny and it was glamorous. There's some things that were, but my life is much better today. I'm so before, wow, I mean, it was 1997. So do the math at 20 plus 22 years, right? And, you know, it was, it was terrible. Like, you know, I mean, to live like that, it was great on one hand, but it was awful on the other hand. So, you know, if I could do it again, of course I would change things, right? Now my what's life- the, What's is, the biggest regret? That people lost money, even though they were rich. That doesn't make it right. I definitely would change that. That was the biggest regret. And also all the drugs I did, like, because I can't look back and say the drugs enhanced the memories. Like I've, all I could tell you is that you pick a fine restaurant anywhere in the world, I've fallen asleep in a bowl of soup at that restaurant when I was high. Versus really enjoying things as I could have enjoyed them. You know, now, you know, I went out and eventually, ultimately was that system of sales though, that I ended up was able to take that and then really take that and make it ethical and that launched my new life after the movie. And that was like, my life is infinitely better today. You know? So when you find out that Martin Scorsese wants to make a movie about you and do you automatically get to meet with Matthew and Leo and all these people? Like how did Leo learn to depict you so well? Did he follow you yeah, around? Yeah, no, we spent about a year together. Just, all, just, all him, just him studying you? and just Yeah, all the time going out, hanging out. Yeah, we became good friends all the time. Is he cool? 
Very cool. He's a, such a nice guy. I, I got to tell you, he's such a good guy. And he's a man of his word. Like, you know, he really is a good guy. I, I, I hope he one day gets married and finds love. Maybe this one. Who knows? He's, a, he's, one. A, he's a wonderful guy and he loves his mom. And she's a doll too. He's a really good guy. He really is a good guy. He's not, you know, he never, notice he never gets in trouble. Yeah. Like he's just a, he's he a solid. He flies under the radar. He's a solid dude. Okay, so here's my proposal. Since we have to be out of here in two minutes. Do you want to sleep me for $1 million? Is it the indecent proposal? Uh, <laughs> you never know. Where are well, the one million, my proposal. Yeah. $1 million. You, you never know. Where are the ludes? No. Oh, there we go. <laughs> this is what I propose. You are such an insane podcast guest. I want you to come back and we talked about this with your wife. Yes. Well, you... With her, with, with, with her permission, with her of permission, course. of course. Yeah, Taylor, don't get a fucking hard on for right. her. <laughs> She's really hot. I want you to come back with your wife because I have more questions that I didn't get to cover. I want to tell you one funny story before we go. Go. So last time we were at uh, my podcast, I said to you, I asked you a question. I said, what would you do if you were going to die when you hear this? I said, this is the classic. I said, what would you do if you were single right now? Where would you go to meet a guy? Remember what you said to me? Yeah. What'd you say? I said a bookstore. Or what? You or said I would have, I'd be, I'd be a sitting. A bookstore or, or I'd be sitting oh, oh, yeah, my whole thing. No, I said, this is what I would do. I would go to San Tropez. I would go to the harbor. I would go to that little cafe. I think it's called Seneca. And I would sit with Anna Karenina with a dog-eared book that I hit against the floor 500 times with bookmarks hanging out of it. And I would wear this really hot outfit with huge sunglasses and a huge hat that's like, don't fucking bother me or talk to me. And I would cross my legs with white stilettos, super high, right in front of the yachts. Where do you think my wife was when you said that? She was in San Tropez. Uh-huh, with her friends. Did, did she, she, might she's still there. Anna, uh, she might be reading Anna Karina. <laughs> you better look what she's reading. How funny is that, by the way? It's it, but That's it's, what she is. She's with her friends. It's but. such an accurate thing. You sit there <laughs> and you don't look like, don't fucking touch me, don't talk to me. <laughs> I don't think she's trying to pick up a guy, but she's there because she loves San Tropez. It was so ironic that Track you said that. Track her location. I was like... You're not going to believe what my <laughs> pod, I knew when you, I was just fucking with her. <laughs> That's my whole strategy. So it Michael is, better I not fuck it. with me. I, well, I'll go somewhere else. don't fuck with her. Yeah, don't fuck with her. Yeah, don't fuck with her. I like to live a little longer. I think if you fuck with that would be the least of your problems. Yeah, by yeah, the way. yeah, yeah. yeah, I, yeah. I was reading an article the other day about the woman who cut off the husband's genitals. That's too boring. That's too obvious. Too I'd obvious go way, I'd go way fucking deeper I'm glad that's off the table. It would be more like that movie with Meg Ryan with the guy when she, the ex, what was that with Matthew McConaughey? Accidentally. I know what you're talking about but i don't know the name it's really funny when she like destroys the puts like pills his hands his thing. So i might frame him come... for murder or like Something drug like use yeah you're like so you're i don't want him to go anywhere white collar though it needs no, to be like bad bad yeah penitentiary shit but like penitentiary in like guatemala definitely you Jordan, know you may be a bad influence Jordan. <laughs> i would like we're just spitballing here yeah? i want you and your wife to come back on i'm already inviting you right now on okay. air in like three weeks <laughs> if <laughs> she's when she comes back yeah, from reading for sure. she'd love to come on she yeah She's dog-earing the book she's, as we speak. She's hitting it against the and ground. I'm sure so it her looks stilettos used. are high enough. Yeah, you uh. put you get a little fake library card popping out, like you're subscribed to the library. You know what I mean? Let's get real fucking specific with it. Jordan <laughs> Belfort, the real wolf of Wall Street. Where can everybody find yeah, you? Yeah, pimp yourself out. Tell us about your program. Instagram, everything. Instagram. You go to jordanbelfort.com. Follow me on Instagram for sure. I, I post great stuff, funny stuff, and also a lot of content for you know influence communication and you know, I love what I do, guys. You know, I really love what I do. It's not even about the money for me. I just love helping people. And that's, I think my drug these days, my addiction is helping other people make money. And I love doing it. I'm good at it. And it feels great. His podcast is fucking hysterical. You've written two books, right? Three. 
three. Mm-hmm. And and your program's called the straight line. Yeah, it's called straight the straight line sales persuasion system. Yep. I, you've persuaded me to go buy your program after this <laughs> podcast. I pity you. <laughs> Jordan, when you start throwing wild parties again, don't forget about your good friend. Uh, <laughs> I know, I know. I'm, I promise I will not forget you in the... Good luck. <laughs> Taylor wants to come too. Of course. Taylor, are you in? What Taylor's like? I mean, are you I can't me? look. Absolutely. Yeah. Taylor's in. Okay, come back on the podcast, please, with your wife. I will. And Instagram handle one more time. Oh, Wolf. That's the real. I'm verified. Wolf of Wall Street is my dad. Yeah, I think it's the. Re- I have a son who's 23. I don't need to know these things. He does. We're gonna link it all. It's the real Wolf of Wall media. Street. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Thank you for coming on. You're incredible. You come got back, it. please. Come back. You got it. Well, that was a wild ride. Like we said, Jordan will be back on the show. He is such a dream guest. I feel like he needs to be a regular. There's so many like different directions we can go. Uh, before you go, we're doing a giveaway as always. Make sure you've rated and reviewed the podcast on iTunes. And then to win some very TSC goodies, think notebooks, pens, pop sockets, just like a, a, some swag. Tell us your favorite part of this episode on my latest Instagram at the Skinny Confidential. And someone from the team will slide into a few of your DMs and you'll get some TSC goodies. With that, we'll see you next Tuesday and make sure you guys are leaving your questions of the week too on our latest Instagram. See you soon. 